we are currently in a series which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And in the course of this series, we've been identifying some of the false teachings that have entered the church that Jesus and the other New Testament writers warned us would happen, which would lead up to a great apostasy in the church where people would depart from the sound teaching of the Word of God and would get off into things that would tickle their ears and even doctrines of demons, which is hard to, for us to comprehend. But I think as we have gone through this series, we have begun to see that those things have indeed entered into the church. And of course, this will lead up to the unveiling of the Antichrist, who will deceive the whole world with a satanic gospel, which will reach pandemic proportions of spiritual deception, ushering in finally the return of Jesus Christ to bring about to this earth a kingdom of righteousness and truth. So this morning, we find ourselves in the third part of a section in this series where we have been looking at psychology. And over the past two weeks, we have shown that psychology is not really a science. Now, most of it, there is a branch which deals with human behavior that is scientific. However, uh, most psychology is not scientific because it deals with the non-physical mind of man. The Greek word for mind is psuche, from which we get the word psyche, from which the word psychology is derived. And psychology is not a science because science, by its very definition, only deals with the physical. It is a religion because any system that deals with the soul of man is by its very definition a religion. In fact, psychology is a religious system based on humanism because it places man at the center instead of God. So it's basically a humanistic religion. And in fact, that's what a major branch of psychology is called humanistic psychology. Now, as we've already said, the reason that psychology has had such an easy time infiltrating into our society and into the church is because it has entered under the guise of science and not religion. But for 1,900 years, the cure of souls used to be handled by clergymen in the church. I want you to think about this. What did Christians do for 1,900 years if psychology was absolutely essential, which many in the church have come to believe, absolutely essential that we be well-adjusted and fruitful Christians. What did Christians do for 1,900 years before psychology came along? I'll tell you what they did. They flourished under the teaching of the Word of God and the biblical counseling ministry of godly pastors and other spirit-filled believers, and, of course, the love of the body of Christ, which was instructed by the Lord that we should bear each other's burdens by loving each other, encouraging each other, and praying for one another. And remember now, these folks didn't have easy lives. They had problems. You know, we think we're the only ones that have problems. Their, their lives were so much better than ours. Look, they lived at a time when medical science was very crude. People died young. Disease was rampant. Uh, there was paganism which led to all kinds of horrible societal problems. Uh, you know, just society was a mess because of all the paganism and all the immorality and all the idolatry that went along with it. They had to put up with constant wars and battles, people coming into villages and, and pillaging and raping and killing. And 
their lives were not easy. And yet Christians for 1,900 years just simply trusted in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they flourished. But all that changed with the coming of psychology onto the scene. In their book, Psychoheresy, Martin and Deidre Bobkin explain, and I'm quoting them, with the rise of psychological counseling in the 20th century, biblical counseling waned until presently it is almost non-existent. The cure of souls, which was once a vital ministry of the church, has now in this century been displaced by a cure of minds called psychotherapy. As soon as religious problems were medicalized, made into diseases, they became psychiatric problems. Problems of thought and behavior, once considered to be the concern of clergymen, were transformed into medical and therefore supposedly scientific problems. They were then transferred from the church to the couch. They go on to explain how this happened. The recipe was simple. Replace the cure of souls with the cure of minds by confusing an abstraction, the mind, with a biological organ, the brain, and thus convince people that mental healing and medical healing are the same. Stern a dash of theory disguised as fact, call it all science, and put it into medicine, and the rest is history, end quote. Now, again, don't confuse brain with mind. They are not the same thing. And this is how psychology has kind of muddied the waters and made us associate the two together to make what they do and the dealing with the mind look like it's medical and scientific. Let me just stop and say this, because I do want to clarify there is a difference between the mind, which is non-physical, and the physical organ that we call the brain. I believe that the organs in our body can sometimes become deficient. I've got a heart condition, I take medicine for that. If you've got diabetes, your pancreas is not producing insulin, you take insulin for that. The brain is an organ as well, and if it's not functioning properly, sometimes it needs medication. But here's the thing. These medications that are prescribed to correct brain chemistry, they're very powerful medications. And I think that they're being overprescribed and abused today. My wife works for the school district, and it's kind of a joke uh, because a couple years ago, every kid in the district that was a little rambunctious was diagnosed with ADD. And then it was ADHD. And so all these kids were on Ritalin. I heard a statistic was shocking. In the last five years, the number of kids on, on Ritalin has skyrocketed many hundreds of percent. Well, that was a couple years ago. Now it's kind of switched, and now every, every kid in the district is bipolar. <laughs> and now they're all on bipolar medication. Well, Phil, are you saying there's no such thing as ADD or ADHD or bipolar? I'm not saying that. I'm not a doctor. All as I'm saying is, that these are very powerful medications. You better pray before you go on them or you put your kids on them. Ask God to heal what's going on. And again, I always think to myself, what did Christians or society do before these medications came on the scene? I think they dealt with these problems. And, and I'm not saying that with some kids it's easy to deal with because some of these kids, I'm not just using children, but some of the kids have been born cocaine babies, crack babies. It's caused 
some, some, some brain chemistry issues. Some of these kids do need to be on medication. I'm not talking about that. That's physiological. I'm talking about the psychological, the mind. The mind cannot be sick. It's non-physical. The brain, that can have problems, and it can lead to some emotional issues. I'm not saying there's no such thing as clinical depression. Maybe sometimes a person needs to go on something like Prozac. But again, these are very powerful drugs. So much better to ask God to heal you. Our society has been medicated to the point where it's almost getting ridiculous. Everybody's on some kind of medication. We can't cope with anything anymore. The answer is, let's run to the doctor and get, get some pills. And I'm not putting down those that really need the medication. But let's pray and let's seek the Lord. But that's another whole area. I'm talking about psychology, though, in this series. And Satan pulled off a major coup when he psychologized the church. At that point, recovery replaced repentance, therapy replaced theology, sin was turned into a sickness, and happiness has replaced holiness as the chief pursuit of the children of God. Thomas Sass, who I've quoted before in this series, considered to be one of the great masters of psychology in the world, in his book, The Myth of Psychotherapy, said, and I quote, Through psychotherapy, we have turned the salvation of sinful souls into the cure of sick minds, end quote. And through his book, Sass, who is not a Christian, he's Jewish, basically goes on to say, look, you Christians have the answers. You ought to take this back into the church. What is it doing out here with us psychologists? We haven't got anything to offer. That's a secular professional making those statements. R.D. Lang, another master who was at a big conference back in the 80s, of the living masters who were still alive. Well, if they're living masters, they were still alive, obviously. But, but they came because they were getting old, and they came to this conference. Thousands of psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers showed up. Incredible things were said at this conference. I quoted some last week. R.D. Lang, again, considered one of the masters in psychology, says, I can't think of one thing that psychology has offered the human race in its entire history in the way of interpersonal relationships. We haven't gotten past Aristotle, Plato, or Shakespeare. And yet Christian leaders by the thousands have bought into the lie of psychology. And again, I'm not saying that Christian psychologists are evil. I'm definitely not saying that. Many of them love the Lord, they're wonderful Christians, and they really desire to help people. I am not questioning their motives. I am challenging their methods. Look, all psychology is fundamentally man-centered and starts out with a faulty premise, and that is that man is basically good and that the evil that he does and the problems he experiences in the way of disorders and emotional problems can all be traced back to the abuse and the traumas that he or she suffered in their past. Psychology paints man as a victim. God sees him as a sinner. It's a different way of looking at man altogether. And even those Christian psychologists who say, look, we don't believe that. We believe that man is a sinner. Yet they still go on to teach that many, if not all, of his problems can be traced back to a low self-esteem. A very well-known Christian psychologist who I won't name because I do respect him and think he's doing a lot of good work for the Lord in other areas has said this, and I quote, In a real sense, the health of an entire society depends on the ease with which the individual members gain personal acceptance. Thus, 
whenever the keys to self-esteem are seemingly out of reach for a large percentage of the people, as in 20th century America, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur, end quote. Now, Dave Hunt, in his book, The Seduction of Christianity, commented on that statement. And he said, and I quote, Hatred, violence, and social disorder, rather than arising out of willful rebellion and sin, are caused by a lack of self-esteem, which is somehow out of reach for these victims of modern life. Instead of pride and the unwillingness to repent of our sin being the great barrier between men and God, we are now being told that such a message is demeaning to our authentic personhood and the paramount need is to build up everyone's self-esteem, end quote. Well, you know, many Christian leaders, and all you got to do is hear them on the radio or read their books, but many Christian leaders in the church are sounding just like the humanistic psychologists in the world. Secular psychotherapist Nathaniel Brandon, in his book, The Psychology of Self and Honoring the Self, views even criminal violence as a psychological problem. Okay? It's a sickness, really. Brandon says, and I quote, I cannot think of a single psychological problem from depression to fear of intimacy to criminal violence that is not traceable to a poor self-concept. Until we are willing to honor the self and proudly proclaim our right to do so, we cannot fight for self-esteem and we cannot achieve it, end quote. So many Christian leaders in the church pick up on that and they begin to echo the very thing the world is saying. In fact, Robert Schuller, who pastors the Christa Cathedral in Southern California, he said this, a person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. I got news for Pastor Schuller. Hell's a lot worse than losing your self-esteem, I guarantee you. <laughs> Bruce Naramore, who's the nephew of Clyde Naramore, another of the early godfathers of Christian psychology, unashamedly writes, and I quote, under the influence of humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, many of us Christians have begun to see our need for self-love and self-esteem. So he admits he didn't go to the scriptures to get that. It wasn't the Holy Spirit leading him to that reality by studying the scriptures. He went to godless atheists to get their take on life and came away believing that they had some inside track on truth the church has missed for 1,900 years. Even though the Bible clearly says, blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Well, Zig Ziglar in his book, See You at the Top, had this to say, and he just echoes what many Christian authors uh, and speakers are saying in the Christian community. Listen to what he said. He said, to build your self-image, make a list of your positive qualities on a card and keep it for hand reference. Brag on yourself from time to time. Come on, get in your own corner. You should also set aside a few minutes each day for the sole purpose of deliberately looking yourself in the eye in a mirror. And as you do this, repeat some positive affirmations of things you have done. Use your victory list from step 10. Then repeat many of the things other people have said to you or about you that were positive. There are also cases where plastic surgery can be quite helpful. <laughs> in building a self-image, this is especially true in cases of an unusually large or long nose, protruding ears, 
or grossly undersized or oversized breasts, etc. Christian counselor and psychologist Dennis Waitley counsels, and I quote, Perhaps the most important key to the permanent enhancement of self-esteem is the practice of positive self-talk. We used to call it bragging, but they, they reinterpret everything. Every waking moment, we must feed our self-image positive thoughts about ourselves and our performances so relentlessly and vividly that our self-images are in time molded and modified to conform to new, higher standards, end quote. Positive self-talk, that's interesting. You know, Jesus actually talked about a guy who had positive self-talk gone to a science. And in Luke 18, Jesus said two men went into the temple one day to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Well, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I give twice a week. I, uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Simple, isn't it? Where did we miss it? Where have we gone wrong? I mean, the words of Jesus are not hard to understand. Where in the scriptures do you ever hear Jesus or Paul or Peter or James or John or Jude encouraging us to brag on ourselves? Get, get in front of a mirror. Look yourself in the eye. Tell yourself what a wonderful person you are. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? That kind of thing. The whole teaching of self-esteem goes against everything the New Testament tells us to do with self. The word esteem means to regard highly, to value greatly, to have a high opinion of. Therefore, self-esteem would be then to regard self highly and to value self greatly and to have a high opinion of yourself. Self-esteem used to be called pride. But again, as the church has been psychologized, everything has been reinterpreted, redefined. Self-esteem used to be called pride and stands exactly opposite to what the Bible says that we as Christians are to do with self. All throughout the New Testament, we hear things like this. Deny yourself. Crucify self. Don't have a high opinion of yourself. Philippians 2, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. See, when you teach people they have to build their self-esteem, what you're actually teaching them to do is to love themselves more and more. Because that's at the heart, self-love is at the heart of self-esteem, right? But do you know that self-love is one of the loves in the Bible that is condemned? We are commanded not to love the world. We are commanded not to love the things in the world. We are commanded not to love things that are immoral or ungodly. 
we're commanded not to love ourselves. We are to love everybody else but ourselves, even our enemies. And far from being a virtue, the New Testament says that self-love is going to be one of the evil qualities that will characterize the last days. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of self, proud, boasters, and it goes on with a, a list of things. You say, well, how did all this come into the church? What happened? The whole argument for self-love being taught and practiced in the church is really based on a misinterpretation of what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 39. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a very simple statement. But today it's been twisted to mean that I can't really love my neighbor or anyone else for that matter until I first learn to love myself. Now, folks, that interpretation has caught on so much in the church and spread so pervasively throughout the church. I mean, you hear it everywhere. You hear, hear it on the radio, Christian radio. You hear it from pulpits. You hear it in books. I mean, it's everywhere. It's so much everywhere that nobody even questions it anymore. I want you to know something. That interpretation did not come from a godly person who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and was spirit-filled. That interpretation first came 60 years ago through a godless, atheistic psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm tried to justify his humanistic view of self-love as being biblical by saying that, you know, even Jesus taught that we really can't love anyone else until we first learn to love ourselves. Therefore, he taught self-love was the greatest love of all. But that's not what Jesus said at all. He didn't tell us, learn to love yourself before you can love others. He said, love others as yourself. Very simple. You love yourself. How do you prove that? You get up in the morning, you feed yourself, bathe yourself, clothe yourself. Take care of yourself. Now Jesus says, do that for others. Treat others as you treat yourself. See, self-love doesn't facilitate our love for others. It hinders it. Because the problem is we love ourselves so much, we often don't have time to love anybody else. And that's what Jesus was, the point he was making. If self-love wasn't implied in what Jesus said, that statement would be ridiculous. Jesus is saying, look, you love yourself, that's a given. Now, I want you to love others the same way. Treat them like you treat yourself. Take care of them. Feed them. Clothe them. Be kind to them. Everyone loves themselves. The problem is we often love ourselves too much. Now, some would say, well, no, wait a minute now. Not everyone loves themselves. I know people that hate themselves. That's a lie. That is not true. Ephesians 5.29 says, no one ever hated themselves. Because we all take care of ourselves. That proves self-love. No one ever hated themselves. Not even the teenager standing in front of the mirror and sees her little face all broken out. And so she screams, you're ugly, I hate you, I hate you. Not even she hates herself. You say, well, how do you know that? 
When was the last time you were upset because somebody you hated was ugly? If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. <laughs> I mean, think about it. The reason we get upset, we look in a mirror and we don't see what we like to see is because we're not measuring up to our concept of how great we really think we are. It's self-love that causes us to say, I hate you, you're ugly. It's because I love myself that I feel that way. Everyone loves themselves. In fact, everybody has a high opinion of themselves, basically. Even criminals, I saw an interesting study that says even criminals have a very high, not low, self-esteem. Common sense tells you that. When they interviewed criminals, and they asked them why they did the things they did, these psychologists expected to get answers like, well, you know, when I was a little, my parents never had time for me, and I grew up feeling bad about myself, and I got this lousy self-image. No, they didn't come up with that. You know what they said? Basically, in a nutshell, they felt that what you got, they deserved more than you do. They had a very high opinion of themselves and a very strong sense of self-love. What you own, they believe they have more of a right to than you do. Therefore, they're going to take it from you and feel totally justified. Folks, that's not low self-esteem. That's high self-esteem. Now, this teaching, the idea that even Christians are, are really harboring under this low self-esteem, and the reason that we're not really all that we should be or could be as Christians is because we need to build up our self-image. This teaching is having some very dramatic effects on the church. It's really perverting our concept of the cross of Christ and why Jesus Christ died for us, as well as destroying our love for and our appreciation towards God for all that he's done for us. Listen to this. This is absolutely mind-boggling to me. But listen to this. Robert Schuller, in his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, listen to what he says. The death of Christ on the cross is God's price tag on the human soul. It means we are really somebodies. But you see, Jesus didn't die for somebodies. He died for sinners. Robert Schuller goes on to say, Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. Listen to this. The cross sanctifies the ego trip. Well, Christian psychologist Bruce Naramore echoes this when he said, What a foundation for self-esteem. The purchase price tells us the value of an object. What a sense of worth and value this imparts. The Son of God considers us of such value that he gave his life for us, end quote. Now, you know what? To me, that is absolutely nauseating. That we have so perverted what God did for us that we could actually look at the cross and see our precious Savior beaten, scourged, hanging on that cross, the God of the universe who made us. And we look at that, we should hang our heads in shame that it was my sin, my rebellion, that caused him to come down and die for me because he loved me. But instead I look at that and get puffed up with pride and say, well, I'm really somebody. Look at this. You only pay what something is worth. If a car is worth $500, you don't pay $5,000. If God was willing to 
Send his son to die for me. I must be somebody pretty special. How disgusting is that? How psychologized and poisoned the church has become today. We don't even think right anymore. We have, turned, we have found a way to turn our sin and rebellion into something that we ought to be proud of. Well, listen to what else Pastor Schuler has said in this book. He said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. That's done a lot of damage, folks. Every time you tell somebody they're a sinner, you are really damaging them psychologically. Listen to what he says. To be born again, we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem. So that's how he, how he defines salvation. Salvation is when you start having a higher view of self, high self-esteem. He goes on to say, if Christianity is, is to succeed... It must cease to be negative, a negative religion, and become a positive one. And finally, the classical error of historical Christianity, and we're so thankful to Pastor Schuller for straightening us all out after 1,900 years, but the classical error of historical Christianity is that we have never started with the value of the person. Rather, we have started from the unworthiness of the sinner, end quote. You know, for years, the church, for centuries, the church sang that glorious hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. Do you realize, and I say this in all seriousness, a lot of churches will no longer sing that hymn? It's too negative. It demeans us. It, it damages our authentic personhood. It lowers my view of myself. And so I guess they want to kind of reinvent that song a little bit. And have us all sing, you know, oh, what worthy creatures we are, you know. <laughs> Amazing me how sweet I am. That caused God to save a lovable and valuable and worthwhile person such as me. Oh, excuse me while I go barf. <laughs> Spurgeon said it well. He said, Jesus did not come to save us because we were worth saving but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone. Nor out of any reason that was within us, but solely and only because of reasons which he took from the depths of his own divine love. In due time he died for those whom he describes as ungodly, applying to them as hopeless an adjective as he could. End quote. Also, A.W. Tozer said in a quote, until we believe that we are as bad as God says we are, we can never believe that he will do for us what he says he will do. Right here is where popular religion breaks down, end quote. Well, you know, as I look at the life of Paul, it seems as though Paul's self-image deteriorated the longer he walked with Christ. It wasn't built up, it was diminished. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, in early in his ministry, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. Later in life, he says in Ephesians 3.8 that he was least of all the saints. And then finally, toward the end of his life, he said that he was the chief of sinners. I think Paul understood the key to his relationship with God. 
was an increasing love for Christ and an increasing disregard for himself. That's the biblical model. Turn to Luke chapter 7 as we wind this down. Very familiar section of scripture, you all know it. But in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Well, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave both of them. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And the Lord is saying to us, the more conscious we are of our own unworthiness, the more we will love and appreciate Him for His forgiveness and grace which He has bestowed upon such unworthy sinners such as we. Listen to me. You will love God in direct proportion to how much you love or don't love yourself. If you see yourself as a worthless sinner, hopelessly lost, who deserve nothing from God, but God, who was rich in mercy and the great love wherewith he loved us, sent his Son to die for us because he loved us, not because we were worthy. If you understand that and believe that, it causes you to fall on your knees in absolute gratitude, weeping, thanking him, praising him. But the more you build yourself up, as we're being told to today, the less you're going to love and appreciate God. Why? Because I'm a pretty good person. I deserve to be saved. I deserve what he gave me. I was so good. You know, the couple of sins I had, fine, but no big deal. Can you see that this teaching on self-esteem is not a harmless, innocuous teaching? It is a very dangerous teaching that will rob you of the true concept of what Christ did, your relationship to God, it will diminish your love and appreciation for God. It will destroy your worship of God. It will do everything. You'll be like the self-righteous Pharisee, not kneeling at his feet like the broken woman, but sitting at the table next to him as an equal, saying, Well, Lord, I deserve to be sitting at the table with you. 
like Simon thought. This is a very dangerous teaching. Well, Phil, you tell me that I should hate myself then? Look, I'm not telling you to love yourself. I'm not telling you to hate yourself. I'm telling you to forget about yourself. <laughs> you know? The person who constantly walks around telling everybody, I'm worthless, I'm, I'm, I'm a worm, I'm, I'm nobody, that's often pride masquerading as humility. Just get off yourself. Forget about yourself. Focus on others for a while. Give us all a break. <laughs> Let me give you one more quote and we'll close. William Law wrote two centuries ago, two centuries ago, boy, this guy had his thumb on the pulse of what was going on. But he said, men are dead to God because they are living to self. Self-love, self-esteem, and self-seeking are the essence of the life of pride, and the devil, the father of pride, is never absent from these passions nor without an influence in them. Without a death to self, there is no escape from Satan's power over us. And that's why I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced he's behind the self-esteem teaching. To discover the deepest root and iron strength of pride and self-exaltation, one must enter into the secret chamber of man's soul, where the Spirit of God, who alone gives humility and meek submission, was denied through Adam's sin. Here in man's innermost being, self had its awful birth and established its throne, reigning over a kingdom of secret pride of which all outward pomp and vanities are but its childish, transitory playthings. This is the satanic natural self that must be denied and crucified or there can be no disciple of Christ. There is no plainer interpretation than this that can be put upon the words of Jesus except a man deny self and take up the cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple, end quote. Folks, at the heart of all of man's problems is not low self-esteem, but high self-esteem, otherwise known as pride, which manifests itself every single day we live on this earth in selfishness, self-centeredness, and the idea that we know better than God what's best for our lives. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. The result is sin and suffering. Why? Because we are living in a world where so many people love themselves so much, they don't care how they treat you. They don't care if they step on you to get where they need to go. Self-love is the problem in this world. And the Bible says very clearly that you and I are responsible for the choices that we make and no one else. That God has given to each of us a free will. We can either exercise that free will in obedience to God or in disobedience to God. But whatever choices we make, we alone are responsible. Man is not an innocent victim infected with the disease of low self-esteem, which causes him to act wrongly and corruptly and even violently at times. His problem is rebellion against God, fueled by pride and selfishness. And listen, he doesn't need years of therapy and recovery. He needs to repent and get his life right with God now and start being Christ-centered 
and start esteeming others more important than himself. That's the biblical view. Not that man is basically good, that man is basically evil and proves his basic evil passions and intentions every day by hurting others, taking advantage of others, all in the name of self-love and a very high view of self. And when Christ enters a person's life, he desires to break us of those kind of things, the self-love, the pride. He wants to humble us. He wants us to become like him. Folks, we shouldn't stand in the mirror every day, look at ourselves and say, oh, what a wonderful person you are. The Bible says that I'm a mirror, and I'm to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. It would be ridiculous and absurd to tell a mirror, you've got to develop a healthy self-image. Because a mirror's whole purpose is to reflect a reality other than its own, right? And the Bible says, as I look into the face of Jesus in the pages of Scripture, and I submit to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, he is transforming me day by day into the image of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at me, he can see the image of his son, not me. God forbid to think that Christ died to give me a better self-image. Self is the problem. Don't build it up. Kill it. And let God use you and work in you in a way that he can only work and use you when self has been crucified.